Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. I don't know what your Christmases are like, uh, but this year I got given a book by a family member on how to die well. So this is the book. Nate, if we could have the next slide, please. Atul Gawande, Being Mortal. In this book, uh, Gawande tells the story of a young physician, Bill Thomas, who comes to work in a care home where there are 80 old people. And uh, Bill Thomas says this is the most dismal environment that he has ever set foot in. It is boring. It is lifeless. It is the last station before the funeral. People, it feels like the whole thing's been constructed just to help people live life out until death arrives. And being a young physician and full of idealism and also not wanting to turn up every day to something as dismal as he was experiencing, he determined to change it. And he took the management on and he said, look, we've got to get some life in here. He said, I would like to introduce two dogs, Target the Greyhound and Ginger the lap dog. I would like to introduce four cats. I mean, that's interesting, dogs and cats, but he, wait for it, and a hundred parakeets. And eventually, this very determined young doctor won the day. And not only did he won the, win the day for introduction, he won the day that all of them would be introduced at one moment, out on one day together. Clearly, his, his gifts of persuasion were stronger than his gifts of implementation because the parakeets arrived before the bird cages. So the guy who brought the parakeets unloaded them all into the library, shut the door, and left. The bird cages then arrived as flat pack furniture later that day. Well, you can imagine the chaos that ensued. Nonetheless, and it was followed then by a colony of rabbits and some laying hens. And uh, Bill Thomas goes on to tell the story of one elderly man who was uh, recently widowed. He'd lost his wife of 60 years. 60 years. And this guy had determined to give up on life. He wasn't getting out of bed anymore. He said, I don't walk. He wasn't feeding himself properly, and his family or the nursing staff needed to help him with the most basic of tasks. So smart Bill Thomas introduced two parakeets into his room. Slowly but surely, there was a change. This elderly gentleman started to watch the parakeets. In fact, he moved his bed, he who couldn't walk, so that he could view the parakeets the whole time. When staff came in, he would advise the staff not on how he was feeling today, miserable always, but on the, on the birds, what they were up to, what they needed, and how they should be served. It wasn't long after that that when a notice went up saying Target the Greyhound needed walking, that our gentleman got out of bed, went to the reception desk, and presented himself as the man to do the task. You know, within three months... He had discharged himself from the care home and had gone back home. And his was not the only change. People started living longer prescriptions, drug taking in the legal prescriptions in the home, reduced by 50%. 50%. Here's what Gawande concluded from this. 
He said, every human needs to have a reason to live. He went on, we all require devotion to something more than ourselves for our lives to be endurable. And I think these are really important lessons. It was David Thoreau, the American writer, who put it like this. He said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And if you don't think that's right, then look in the eyes of the commuters that you're next to tomorrow or whenever you're next traveling around London and spot how many eyes of quiet desperation there are. Uh, this next bit was attributed to him. He didn't actually write it or say it, but I liked it, so I've added it. Um, and it says that, and die, so the mass of, quiet of men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their songs still inside them. Now, I think the most important part of what Gawande observed and what the Bible actually talks about is that you don't have to be young to have a sense of purpose. These people were at the end of their lives. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to have had a great family and a great education and have a great job to be looking for what's next in life. These people were at the very opposite end. They had suffered loss. They had suffered pain. Life, at least in recent times, had probably not been kind to them. But they still needed a sense of endurance, or they still needed a sense of purpose. This, of course, is an important lesson for us as well. The Bible observes it. It says that hope deferred, when you lose your hope, it makes the heart sick. In other words, it's not good for people to live without purpose. It doesn't do them any good. The Christian faith offers all sorts of opportunities for purpose. It offers them individually, but maybe more importantly, it offers them together as a family. When we join a church, then we come into a body, a family, that should be that is oozing possibilities. It's pregnant with purpose and pregnant with hope and with promise for the future. So even if I can't work out what my vocation is, even if I've done the life plan and I've worked with the life coach or whatever and I still can't work out what I'm for, then actually it doesn't matter and the Bible has a lot more to say about what we're for together than it says what we're for individually. Maybe there's part of that, living for something beyond ourselves. We can do more together than any one of us, however fantastically able you are, can do by yourself. This should be a community deal. And I want to focus for a few minutes on our particular purpose, our particular, if you like, calling or vocation. What Luther used to call the inner whisper from God. Because this is one of the great gifts to us, and we can find it in the book of Acts, as Stephanie read to us, from Paul's visit to Ephesus. And let me just sketch a bit of background to this. I'd like you to imagine, please, that you are standing with Paul looking down on Ephesus. And you're thinking, my life has been literally turned around. I mean, Paul breathing threats, persecuting Christians, imprisoning and killing them. Now, now doing the exact opposite, planting churches, advancing the faith, telling everyone, this God who loves us can change your life. He's standing there looking down on Ephesus. Well, here's what he can see. The first thing that stands out as he looks down is the temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you've been to Athens, then you will have seen the Parthenon dominating the, the skyscape. 
Well, this temple here is four times the size of the Parthenon. Huge. To worship Artemis, or Diana, her Greek name, to worship Artemis was to go and to, to be with a cultic prostitute. And as you gave yourself, it was seen as worship to Diana. Paul looked down, he could see this huge, expansive temple. Amazing architecture. And he knew too that every single person who regarded themselves as a citizen of Ephesus felt a sense of uh, calling or, or one of their jobs was to defend Artemis' reputation. I mean, this is not good. <laughs> I'm here to share God's love, not Artemis's love. Every single one of these citizens are like, we defend Artemis. What else would he have seen? As he looked down, he would have also seen the theater. If you go to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, you can still see it. That theater is 10 times the size of the largest West End theater. It took 25,000 people. We'll see later. Paul gets himself in a spot of bother and ends up in the theater. Now, just imagine, just while we've got the picture here, just imagine 25,000 defenders of Artemis in danger of rioting, filling that, temp, uh, filling that theater. Imagine the volume of sound. Maybe, fortunately, Paul, looking down on Ephesus, does not know what's in store for him. Now, if you're seeing the temple, if you're sensing the loyalty of the citizens, if you're seeing the size of everything, then you start to think, well, what have I got? Well, Paul's audit was fairly quick and easy. I have no connections there. There's virtually nobody who knows Christ there. I have two traveling companions, no money. So what do you do? <laughs> well, probably the first thing you do is feel thoroughly intimidated. I remember starting Christchurch London 13, 13 years ago. We had our first ever meeting. It was a sort of lunch and chat and sharing a vision. Funnily enough, not dissimilar to what I have to say today at the Strand Palace Hotel in February 2004. I dropped Philip and the children off. I went to park the car, and I remember walking from Covent Garden, which was the only place I could find to park the car. I was new to town. <laughs> I remember walking back to the Strand and just feeling dwarfed by the size of the buildings. You don't, you don't notice. I don't notice now, but you could just see them. And this number of people. And I remember talking to myself, David, for goodness sake, don't lose your confidence today. <laughs> you're about to stand up and tell 50 people you're starting a church. <laughs> but it was intimidating stuff. How do we do that? And I hope you feel a, a sense of the challenge. Four services going on, five services, but nonetheless, really just a handful of us in a population with many skeptical, cynical, hurt, broken we want to share God's love. The sheer joy and privilege of that. So where does Paul start? Well, he bumps into 12 withhold disciples. He asked them a really interesting question. I don't know what the first question you'd ask. Have you got any money? He doesn't ask them that question. He says, have you got the Holy Spirit? They say, holy who? <laughs> I mean, they, they say, we have not heard of the Holy Spirit. So why does Paul start there? Why does he start there? Not who are your contacts? How can we launch an advertising campaign or whatever? Why does he start with the Holy Spirit? Well, he starts because it has been a life-changing experience for him. And if something's changed your life, you want to give it away. You know, he's on his way to Damascus, modern-day Syria, 
to persecute the church. He sees a bright light. He falls to his knees. Paul, who are you that persecutes me? Shocking, revolutionary. Must have thought he was imagining it. He goes and sits in Damascus for three days. Cannot see. Doesn't have anything to eat or anything to drink. He must be in total turmoil. Then a guy he's never met arrives and says, God has sent me. Ananias. says, How did you find me? God has sent me. And he's told me to lay my hands on you that you would receive the Holy Spirit. And it says, and this was, I think, both historical fact but powerful metaphor as well. It says that when Paul was prayed for, he was filled with the Spirit and his eyes opened. He'd been blind. He'd not seen where he was going. Now, full of the love of God, full of the power of God, he sees everything in multicolor. It all looks different. And you may say, well, I could take some of that. Well, certainly these Ephesians needed that, these 12. And he prays for each of them, and we're told that they speak in new languages. And they start under the inspiration of the Spirit to talk about the future. Maybe they talked about what God wanted to do in that city. Who knows? But it's interesting to see the sort of process that leads to that sort of experience, which count most many of us have had here. I, but the reason I sit on it, although many of us have had experiences, is that we all leak. So you may have had a great experience of the Spirit, but we all need constant refillings. I remember one time, not too far from me, from here actually, I spent a month years and years ago in Brockley in South London. I was staying with somebody else and the, bed, the only bed they had for me was a bunk bed. But I'd found in my heart the days before that a longing for more of God. Often you feel it before you think it. Do you know what I mean? Just as I could do with, I want to be closer to him. I hear that story and I think, I have never experienced anything like that. That would be worth pursuing. That would be worth having. And one night, I couldn't sleep. And I'm lying there. And you know what it's like when you can't sleep and you're in somebody else's house, so you can't even get up. So I thought, well, I might as well pray. Incidentally, I find that's a fairly good way of getting to sleep sometimes. <laughs> but I... For the next half an hour or so, I lie in bed, or lie on the bed, and I pray and I think about the love of God. I think that was significant. It started with longing, then it went to pursuit. It was the next day that during a time of worship, I had an experience like I'd never had before. I remember it literally started this side of the head, just this closeness, and then this sense of somewhere between liquid love and electricity, which just started on this side of the head and slowly spread all over my body. I didn't dare move a jot in case it went away. By the end of that, I knew I must read the Bible more. Not in the future, but right now. And I looked at my next three days that were packed, and I thought the only way I will do it is if I take the hour at lunchtime, I do not eat, but I read the Bible instead. It was, possible, it was one of the first times I'd ever fasted. I missed each lunch for the next three days. And I read and I read the Song of Songs. And Jesus' love came alive to me in ways I'd never seen before and poured love into my heart. Now you may say, when did you get full of the Spirit? Was it 
lying on the bed? Was it in the worship? Was it when you were reading the Bible? I don't know. I don't care. I know I got more. And I know it changed my life. That was over 30 years ago, but I can remember as I narrate it to you, each part of that really clearly. Now that's a good way to start a church. And it's a good way to continue a church. And once you've got the lights and the band and the gifted worship leader and all the other bits, you can think, oh, well, we've got some things. Maybe we don't need as much of what we started with. And actually, the, uh, in the beginning of Revelation, when the, when the different churches are being written to, they're warned about that. Do not lose your first love. Do what you did at the beginning. And so we start. We start with the presence of the Holy Spirit. If we had time, we could reflect on the Scriptures and the way that they talk about the Spirit providing confidence. Do you get scared sometimes? Do you wish you were bolder in being able to share in appropriate ways your faith? Then you need more of the Spirit. You get low sometimes rather than full of joy. You need more of the Spirit. The Spirit gives you joy, sometimes irrational joy. In Acts, we're told that the whole city of Samaria was full of joy because of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be a great thing on a Monday morning? London, Evening Standard, London, full of joy. Shock, horror. If we had time, we'd look at how the Holy Spirit gives us love. Do you know the most basic, the greatest need every single one of us has is to know we're loved. Not there, but there. It's why when people fall in love, they're so excited and dismal at getting anything done other than thinking about the person they love. They're, just, they're meeting a huge, huge, deep need that actually the Spirit of God gives us. The Spirit of God gives us. Now, you may say, whoa, David, I'm visitor. This is a bit weird. You just, let me share with you another piece of reading from this year. This was a big book, not used to impress you, but just because there's a great quote inside. Uh, next slide, please. The book I read over the summer, Protestants, the Radicals Who Made the Modern World. Rari is a professor of church history. This is a serious book reviewed in most of the uh, broadsheets. Uh, but he says this in it. Next slide, please. He says, nearly a tenth of all humanity and more than a quarter of all Christians now belong to what he describes broadly as the Pentecostal movement. Now, the Pentecostal movement is anyone, in Rari's terms, who talks about experiences of the Spirit today. Did you hear that? One in ten of all humanity has now had an experience of the Spirit of God. This is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. This has been the fastest growing religious movement in the world for at least 50 years, 70 years. And one in four of every Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, the whole lot. God loves the whole lot, by the way. And he pours his spirit out on all of it. Isn't that wonderful? So this is a little more mainstream than maybe you imagined it to be. Anyway, enough said. Receive the spirit. In a while, we'll have an opportunity to give. Once we've given and poured out our hearts of love, if you want, you can come to the front and you can receive the Spirit. That just happens to be in that order today. I'm not saying that's the way. You're not paying for the Spirit, clearly. <laughs> and we'd better move on fast. They can't, so they receive the Spirit. What happens next? Well, 
Paul has this most remarkable thing happen as people come to faith. Demetrius, who we'll meet in a little while, he says large numbers have come to faith. Next slide, Nate, if you would. Next slide as well. And we're then told, next, next uh, text, we're then told that all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In the whole province, Paul, for two years, sets himself up in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, but the whole province, whole, there's churches, haven't got time to explain it all, churches all over Asia Minor are getting started as a result of this talked about in the book of Revelation. Paul stays in the capital, visitors come from everywhere, get persuaded by what he has to say and goes back, and joy fills the place. And it is joy. Sharing, the fa- sharing your faith gives you joy. Receiving faith gives you joy. And so it goes out. Now, we are praying. We start here. We're based here. This is the center of all Christchurch London's operations. Our gathering here at the Mermaid on a Sunday. But as people receive the Spirit and come to faith and grow, we expect to start other services in other places as well. I was down in Sutton last week. I can report the brothers and sisters in Sutton are doing fab. It was, it was just, I came away as high as a kite after last Sunday morning. I'd taken nothing at all apart from the Holy Spirit. But it was just fabulous. They were loving each other and they were loving Jesus and the presence of his spirit was there and there were a new couple to the church but they used to be part of us before we came to the mermaid. They've moved to Sutton to be part of this. There was another guy, he lives in Sutton, he stopped coming here because it was too far but there he was in the second row. There were two other couples I'd never met before. And there, were some, and there were a number of people away who come to faith through Alpha. When I went down in April, just midweek, and met a small group from Sutton, I said, so how's it going? Let's just do a highlight around the room. First person. He said, a year ago, I would have never, ever dreamt I would be in a church like this. I wouldn't have believed you if you told me. But Alpha has been great. Next person. I've loved doing Alpha and having Alpha in my home. It's been a joyful privilege. Next person, if you knew me, you would, you would know my life is totally transformed as a result of doing Alpha. Yes! This is exactly what we're about, and it leads to joy. There was joy in numbers one and three, if you'll forgive me numbering individuals for a moment. There was joy in numbers one and three who had received, and there was great joy in number two who had given away. It works both ways. Now, Paul was in an environment that was aggressively, um, not secular, but, but had other faiths. You know, the Jews, it, we're told, became obstinate and maligned the way. Now, to malign the way today is you publish articles that are not true and smear people. That's what was happening. And then we're told that the whole city riots and fills the theater because they're worried that they're going to lose money from the temple because you can't sell so many statues because so many people are coming to faith. So it's a bit of a tricky situation. So how did Paul, in that aggressive environment, see so much joy? And before you say, well, that's not relevant to us now, I think it is. Did you see this newspaper headline this week? Oxford College bans harmful Christian unions from Freshers' Fair. They said, no, you can't have a stall because we want a safe and secular space for the freshers. There's so much I could say about this. But let me just draw one thing out. The JCR, the student group, actually got to vote on whether they would do this or not. Unfortunately, and in my opinion, rightly, they said, freedom of speech really matters to us. 
Even if you disagree, you need to be free to talk about it. Freedom of religion and expression of faith is really important to us. And even if we don't agree with you, you need to be able to talk about it. So they voted it down and there was a CU fair. But I'm just saying that sort of thing and those conversations and some of the institutions that we're involved with, they're not very, they're not unfamiliar. So how did Paul stay in his lane? Because these things can distract. And you can end up wanting to do things there. And how, did, how did Paul stay in his lane, stay focused, lead, not only find huge numbers of people in Ephesus and all the province around? How did he do this so that so many of them came to faith? Well, I would suggest that the, the secret, if you like, the key to it is in how Paul conducted himself in the hall of Tyrannus. We're told he discussed. A strange thing happens to some Christians when they get full of the Spirit and start to share their faith. They forget that their friends are people they love and they start to deal with them like scalps or trophies. It's dreadful. Paul discussed, he loved, and he respected. If you're going to discuss with people for two years, you cannot harangue and bully because they won't come back. Discussion involves actually dictionary definition and exchange of ideas. It is saying today we live in a pluralistic environment. A pluralistic society. We will hear yours. You must hear ours. We will listen together. And we will explore. And Paul didn't insist. He didn't bully. He didn't say, you must come to faith. It says later in the passage, which we didn't get to read, that there were city officials who were friends of his, but it seems that they were not Christians. So Paul had friends outside the Hall of Tyrannus. Maybe they'd come and heard him. They just said, we don't get it, Paul. Paul says, I love you anyway. But there was that mutual respect. Now, that mutual respect didn't go, you know, well, I sort of don't care. You know, you think what you want. I don't mind. That's not Paul. Paul's like this, I'm going to share this love and the gift, this joy, wherever I can. But he's also respectful at the same time. And it's holding both of these in balance, which is very, very, very important. Paul also acted as well as spoke. It says that he cared for all those who were plagued by evil and prayed for the sick. Actions speak louder than words. I don't go for what some people sometimes quote Francis of Assisi saying, he preached the gospel everywhere and on occasions used words. I understand what, he's, what that's saying, which is actions speak louder than words. But there are some words as well. Jesus loves you. He rose from the dead. He will come back and renew all things. Get in line with him. I mean, those are rather important things to be said. So we say things, but we act with love and with respect. And we act in practical terms, in terms of those plagued by evil and those who are sick and those who are in need. And we do so in spiritual terms and we offer them relationship with Christ and we pray for them where they are sick as well. We do all of that. And then, and finally, Paul persisted. He got up. Every day, and he went to the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. Somebody recently said to me, David, the secret of success is turning up. Well, it's at least a great place to start, isn't it? And if you don't turn up, you don't. And Paul turned up, and he kept turning up, and he kept speaking. So we respect, we love, we serve, and we speak. And as we do those things, we trust that joy will fill this city. And joy will fill your heart as well as you hear stories and as you're part of that whole process. And so this is our dream. Our dream is that the church 
We get full of the Spirit, and the city gets full of joy. What is not to like about this? And then the overflow of personal faith is public transformation. Personal faith goes to public change. And this happens in this city. Paul has not said a word against the temple of Artemis, though it dominates the landscape. But because so many people are coming to faith, the workmen start to get nervous that he's not going to have, they're not going to be able to sell their statues as a result. And it's a great reminder to us that the love of God starts in people's hearts but flows out into public lives as well. Let me read you an article or a quote from Time magazine, international magazine, not known for faith in any way at all, just does the news. Here's what, they, here's what it said a couple of years ago. Remember the spiritual revivals that helped lead to the abolition of slavery in Britain and the United States? Interesting. Spiritual revivals that led to these things. The black church's leadership during the American Civil Rights Movement, the deeply Catholic roots of the Solidarity Movement in Poland that led to the overflow of communism, how Desmond Tutu and the South African churches served to inspire victory over apartheid and today, how the growing evangelical and Pentecostal churches of the Global South are mobilizing to address the injustices of globalization. Here is the key sentence. Historically, social reform often requires spiritual revival. Wow. Often social reform requires spiritual revival. To change the world out there requires a change in here first. And I love the fact. There's so many things I love about being part of this family, but one of the things that I love is the way that so many of you are living that out. I've been chatting recently with a couple in the South Service. Chris spends his days developing mobile banking in Africa that is drawing hundreds of thousands of people out of entrenched poverty. He says that's because of my faith. His wife, Cricky, is a marketer who's using her skills to get the news out that FGM in West Africa is bad news and looking to change culture there. There are, uh, we have a, a, a young lady in the West End service who will be speaking at the Everything Conference. She paints Yazidi women. You remember Mount Sinjar? Do you remember the news a couple of years ago? The Yazidis stuck there with ISIS in pursuit. One of the most persecuted minorities in the world. And she paints portraits of these ladies. She's out in Iraq this summer. And she paints ladies in gold leaf. She's a student. I said, Hannah, how do you afford gold leaf? She said, I do without new shoes. And I do without new this. And I do without new that. Because I want to express the dignity that everybody has, whatever's happened. How many times they've been sold by ISIS that they have dignity because they've made in the image of God. What a privilege. People in this room who've started artisan bakeries to provide opportunities for women who've been previously exploited. Wow, my brothers and sisters. I get to do this with them. I might not have done it, but I'm going to try and claim some of the glory by being with them. <laughs> and we can, because this is much more a thing we do together than a thing we do apart. One of the reasons we're so excited about the Everything Conference is because we want to create coalitions of people who care about this world because their lives have been transformed to work for the good of this city, and we think more people find Christ that way as well. So, our dream, countless people 
coming alive because of experiences of the Holy Spirit. That joy spreading because countless numbers in this city and beyond are coming to faith. And the city looking different as a result as people's lives are changed. For me, that is a purpose worth living for. Thank you, Atul Gawande, for reminding me that I don't have to wait till my last stage of life to live that way. I can live that way now. Now, in order to do all of this, we are praying for 250,000 pounds over the next two weeks, which is something we've not spoken about a lot these last few weeks. We've concentrated on our hearts, and we felt that's been really important. But now's the time to ask the question, how will you contribute? One of the things that we've said over these last few weeks is that numbers of people have moved on over this last year. It's always happening. But some of the central key Christchurchers who've been carrying this thing financially have moved on. God bless them. We're thrilled they were part of us. We're thrilled that they've gone on to new things. But that gives an opportunity to us to step up. He may be saying to some of us, the Spirit may, may be saying to some of us, you now are to fill others' places. I wonder what the Spirit is saying to you. During the last couple of weeks, I received an email. It came via somebody else in the office, and they wouldn't tell me, rightly, you'll see why, they didn't, wouldn't tell me who it was from. So I have an anonymous email, and I want to read it to you. And it said this. This is an example of the Spirit speaking. When David was preaching on Sunday about giving, an amount came into my mind that equated to 10% of my income. I discussed it as my, I dismissed it as my head doing very quick mental maths. When David then mentioned the option of stepping towards 10% in sequences, I thought maybe I'd halve the amount that came into my head. But that 10% amount kept popping up. I asked God for more time to pray and to give me another assurance that 10% was the right amount. Of course, they went on, this was at the bottom of my prayer list. How honest of them. I have to admit, I did not earnestly seek God for his guidance on my giving. But earlier this week, I was reading an article on Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and how his heart was transformed, and he pledged to return four times more than he had taken. 10% of my pay equals four times more than my current giving. God is good, signed off with a smiley face. Now, I think that person has given their heart. It's given their heart. And that's what God appeals for or asks for for all of us. And so, and maybe the band could come back, please. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a few minutes. The band are going to play. But this is our opportunity to pray and ask for the Spirit's guidance or leadership. And it also gives us an opportunity to fill out these envelopes, which we have on each chair if you want to do so. And then once, uh, once we've had a few minutes with the band playing, but us sit, seated, so when the band starts to play, I understand if you're a Christchurch regular, you get up, you sit down this time. So sit down, we have some time to pray, reflect, fill out envelopes, and then in a few minutes, I will invite us all to stand, and we'll sing together, and uh, we'll take that offering, and then Andy will come back and lead us in prayer, both for thanksgiving, for all that God has provided, and asking him for multiplication of that into good works and lives changed. So I wonder whether you'd bow your head with me. I'd like us to pray together, and, uh, and then we've got a few minutes to continue to pray, and if we want to, to fill out an envelope 
before we stand, sing, and take the offering. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this gift of purpose that you provide for us. Thank you for the wonderful joy of receiving your spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, fill this space now. Come, Holy Spirit, on our sacrifice, on our joy, on our service, for your name's sake. Thank you for the joy of sharing faith with others and others finding you. Thank you for the joy of using the gifts, talents, and resources that we have to make this city and this world a better place. Now I want to pray, Holy Spirit, be whispering to us. Show us what you want from us. Show us how you want us to respond to you. We want our lives poured out, for we know that there is joy and there is glory to God. And so, Lord, we open our hearts and open our lives to you now in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.